HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You reach for it each time you make a salad. But do you really think about it? You will after you hear all about vinegar today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on this weekly journey through culinary history. And in case you haven't noticed lately, there's been a bit of a revolution of fermentation, pickling, preserving. Uh, it, it's just part of the whole new food movement. And indeed, it's something that is, has been around for time memorial, but we've never really paid a lot of attention to it until recently. The history of vinegar as a beverage is a whole lot longer than it is as a flavoring agent that we know of, but today we are seeing a revival of vinegar as a beverage. And I have with me just the guy to answer all these questions. You know, what is vinegar? How is it made? And what can it be made from? He has traveled the world learning about vinegars, and the culmination is a terrific new book called Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar by Abrams Book, and he is Michael Harlan Turkel. Michael is a professional photographer whose beautiful photos have graced the pages of what, about 12 yeah, dozen books or more? Now. Yeah. yeah, all cookbooks, all cookbooks, right? Yes. And the guy's also a cook, as you will find out. This book is also a cookbook. And he's no, he's no stranger to the studio because Michael also hosts a radio show here at Heritage Radio Network weekly called The Food Scene. Welcome, Michael. Listen, thanks. All right. Wonderful. You know, in doing these shows, I'm sure you find, as I certainly do, that we 
that we're sort of thrust into these incredible stories about food and and questions about food and food production. <laughs> and you deal with beautiful photographs and cookbooks of, of authors that you interview. How did you get immersed in vinegar? Not literally, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that has actually happened, but that might be a story oh, okay. for later. That, that was a big <laughs> spill right. one time, but... Um, Ooh, I had to been. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always had an acidic palate. Um, you know, when I was a cook, I was always trained to... You, I think most chefs say if you're missing something from a dish, it probably needs acid. Right. Uh, I learned that at a very young age, and... and you know, I, I loved acetic acid. I loved vinegar, but that was kind of on the back burner for a whole bunch of years. Um, I was in Number Nine Park with Barbara Lynch, and she handed me literally a capful of this crazy Austrian vinegar. Said, "This is the best shit you're ever gonna have. Don't fuck it up." And gave me the rest of the bottle to take home. And I'm like, "How good can this, you know, this be?" Uh, and it just changed me. It changed my palate completely. And aside from just drinking that thimbleful of of the elixir, did you have questions about like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to use it? It was a special bottle. You didn't want to waste it. I mean, experimentation can sometimes be yeah, you know, yeah. excruciating. I mean, that's when empirical data comes into play. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of research. So I went home and before I even did anything with it. I did as much research as I could, you know, find. Uh, that was the problem. There wasn't much information out there about vinegar. Um, and up until, you know, uh, this day and then this book coming out, um, my reference points weren't very much in literature. Uh, there were some scientists that had some, you know, papers, etc. But a lot of what I learned and was through seeing and tasting and visiting these places. It was a very oral history. Um, and, you know, only now am I starting to uncover more documents. Like here in the U.S., we've had a long history of vinegar. And Thomas Jefferson uh, used to make vinegar. Mm-hmm. And the papers therewith of, of his experimentations were only recently, you know, found and released. So when you talked about the, the oral histories, you're referring to your travels yep. around the world to, to discover vinegars. Why did you choose to, I mean, there's, there, as you just said, there's so much right here in the U.S. and so much history, and we get a lot of different vinegars. Lucky you to decide to travel. But what made you realize you needed to go in search of, of different product? Uh, I wanted to see what the common threads were, the mm-hmm. you know, how things contrasted. And, I mean, I care about global cuisine. Uh, I, I you can be myopic, and I certainly was with choosing uh, such an eccentric topic as vinegar, but I, I knew it existed all around the world, or I assumed it did. Um, and I wanted to see how it kind of iterated throughout those cultures and throughout different cuisines. Well, a lot of people um, still believe in that myth that vinegar is just the byproduct of wine gone bad. Mm-hmm. and. I've invited you here today to dispel that myth. <laughs> in, but in theory, yeah. I, mean, I mean, in reality, yes. Indeed, I think people still, you know, the, the, the whole fermentation movement and, you know, pickling and preserving and stuff, that people, I think people are just beginning to learn about the nuances of vinegar. Um, so tell us, what, the big question, what is vinegar? I could tell you the... the dorky uh, description of that is a certain percentage of acetic acid suspended in water. Um, here in the U.S., it's 4 to 6%. Um, other places in the world regulate higher percentages of that. After 10%, it starts becoming a little caustic. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you can get all the way up to, you know, the high 90s. It's called glacial vinegar. And that's used for uh, scientific research and even going as far as the medical field. Or uh, a solvent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I think even in like World War One or two, it was being used as a cauterizing agent in the field. Um, so there, there are a lot of non-culinary uses uh, uh, in vinegar. Um, but... In the culinary realm, it is that 4 to 6% range, especially here yeah. in the U.S. Well, I mean, throughout history, it was used, had a lot of different uses, uh, primarily as, you know, as a, a taste agent, um, whether to drink or to, uh, you know, to flavor foods. And how do we know this? What, what, what actual historical evidence do we have that vinegar was used and vinegar existed? Yeah. Um, Purposely. Purposely. Pur- <laughs> well, I, I want to go back to a point that you said, you know, uh, a lot of people kind of calling vinegar wine go- gone bad. Right. And I keep on thinking about, well, you know, let's take cider vinegar, apple cider vinegar, for instance. Uh, we don't call apple juice like pre-wine. Right. So it's it's a product in it of itself. It, it's not something... You know, going bad. Into it. If anything, it's wine made into good vinegar rather than bad wine. Um, and this has been happening since maybe like 3000 BC in Mesopotamia. Uh, it's kind of amazing. My, my, my wife is a wine and spirits writer. And uh, we got to travel together through Europe uh, in this book. And where there's wine, there's eventually vinegar. You know, where there's beer, there's eventually vinegar. Where there's any kind of alcohol, there is likely potentially vinegar. And I think that was the most fascinating thing to find. So I started uh, researching more about winemaking and beer making and even other styles of acetic fermentation uh, because I knew vinegar would be there eventually. So in Mesopotamia, uh, the Euphrates and Tigris River were fertile uh, beds of amazingly juicy and syrupy fruits. The like fertile crescent, yeah, they had everything. Exactly. Right? They had figs and dates and pomegranates. And, you know, they, they figured out how to make wine or wine figured out how to make itself and they enjoyed it as such. But without anything to control the temperature, uh, that wine would eventually spoil and turn into vinegar. So I don't know if there was a complete classification uh, or, you know, understanding how to categorize those two things. You know, there, there was the wine, and they knew when they drank it, they felt different, maybe a little drunk. And then there was vinegar, and they knew when they drank that, they felt different, maybe a little restorative and enlivened. Uh, but you can find these this kind of information uh, in tombs in Egypt, you know, uh, scribed on the wall where vinegar was used actually more as a preserving agent than anything else. Uh, but families would trade this prized vinegar for embalming services for their family. So it was duly a preservative. As long as they didn't and, use the vinegar to embalm them. I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> it, it could, it could, it could quite preserve. Possibly, yeah. It could preserve, yeah. But the, the versatility uh, also showed up in, in China where it was probably one of the first instances of it being a culinary um, agent uh, where there was this Shao dynasty around a thousand BC was using it as like a dipping sauce. I would say, didn't they use it more of a flavoring agent? Yeah. 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 I mean, now we see it on the side of, uh, you know, soup dumplings in Chinatown or or to make uh, sauces like dandan noodles. Uh, There is Chiang Kang black vinegar in there. But I think that was one of the first instances it actually made it to the table. Yeah, there are it was, there are so many other uses that have been recorded too, um, in obviously in the Bible it's, it's 
written a lot, but also medicinal uses. Uh, They believed, well, you mentioned um, drinking vinegar and feeling restored. It was used as a, a, you know, a restorative or take a little shot for vim and vigor. Yeah. but they even believe that that during the the in the 14th century that during the Black Plague it could help cure. Unfortunately, it yeah, did not. <laughs> yeah, no, they yeah. believed it. Did it work? <laughs> right. No, not quite. But it actually is a really delicious vinegar. Um, four Thieves vinegar. Yeah, or, yeah. what is what is Four Thieves vinegar? Yeah, explain that for. People. So it was a vinegar scented and perfumed with a whole bunch of aromatics, usually wild sage and rosemary. Now you can see modern iterations in Marseille. You can still buy Four Thieves just in case that bubonic plague comes back. Um, Usually studded with garlic, and it's more of a savory vinegar used for kind of coastal seafood cooking than it is to ward off, you know, what ails you. Yeah, I mean, fish and vinegar are just a perfect match. Oh, yeah. I I make a bouillabaisse in the book uh, using Four Thieves vinegar. Oh, cool. Uh, Honey... um, Honey was often added to vinegar, well, in ancient Greece especially. Um, but, you know, which is, you think, well, that made it more palatable or it made it sweeter um, for their ancient drink, the oxymel or whatever they called it. And then, of course, ancient Rome had their their drink, and that was recorded in, in Apicius and many of the ancient mm-hmm. cookbooks as the Posca. Um, but what... They also use vinegar in something that we haven't talked about, and that's as a perfume. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, and that is that. I just um, did a show on an ancient Syrian cookbook recipes from ancient Syria uh, translation, and a good, I would say, a good half of the book was devoted to the making and recipes of perfumes because that was all part of the dinner process. One had to perfume, perfume their hands and their arms and their, you know, their beings to sit next to someone and eat. And vinegar could really kill some bad odors. That's oh yeah. Good. <laughs> I, it is a very, very, um, volatile aroma. And, you know, vinegar is a fascinating thing because it is, again, this a percentage of acetic acid suspended in water. Um, so if you want to get technical, it's kind of a hydrosol and hydrosols are, you know, some kind of flavor in water and they are great carriers. So vinegar is a wonderful carrier of aroma. That's why I don't ever tell people to stick their nose in the glass to yeah, smell it because, yeah. uh, I, unless you feel like coughing, um, <laughs> you know, it, it is not noxious. I, I don't want to use that word, but it is very, very powerful. Right. Yeah. It does have that astringent kind of quality mm-hmm. to it when you breathe in deeply and we'll just think of all the uses we use it for today i mean you know wiping down counters and you know oh, deodorizing yes. things well, and i'm yeah. trying to lead a charge uh, to not to not use it for that well yeah. those are those are the white distilled yeah use it relegated generic, to cleaning right. but you know culinary models. vinegars no all right so let's get on to these culinary vinegars what i mean what can't be made into vinegar? I mean, vinegar can be made out of just about any it's edible stuff. Absolutely. Right? And maybe some non-edible things, too. Um, I have a funny little chart in the back of the book. I have one recipe on how to make vinegar, literally one. And it's more of a theoretical idea of how to control these certain variables. But the beginning of that 10 to 12 page chapter is one kind of flow chart. And it says starch, sugar, alcohol, acetic acid. And that's how it flows. Anything that is a starch that can be converted into a sugar and then fermented in alcohol and then double fermented in the So it's just acid. like a chemistry class yeah, recipe. Absolutely. Right? And and that's all you need to know. Yeah, right? and so anything that hits any of those marks um, 
can eventually be vinegar. And you ask, uh, what can't be made? <laughs> I am struggling with making a nut vinegar right now, but it is converting. Um, I've seen bean vinegars. You know, I've seen vegetable vinegars. Well, soy, well I mean, beans, legumes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I don't know what can't be made into vinegar right yet because I've seen most everything that I've questioned eventually convert. And full disclosure, I have a daughter-in-law who's mentioned in this book. Oh, yeah, book, absolutely. Jory MD, and yeah. she makes vinegar out of everything. Oh, she my God. Out of, and out of scraps from the restaurant. She just takes you all know, different It's scraps. amazing because she is a prime example of how sustainable vinegar can be. You know, uh, often it's a secondary or tertiary market of a uh, couple different things from, you know, wine producers or beer producers, um, you know, or ethanol producers uh, can then convert that. We won't get into yeah, no. <laughs> uh, some companies that may use petroleum uh, to turn into white distilled vinegar. But, yes, it, it's kind of a great fail-safe that if you're in the booze business, you can also be in the vinegar business. Sweet potatoes. Oh, yes. Yeah, Japanese. Uh, that, that was wild. Yeah, who would ever guess, right? It's... Well, I guess Io Jozo, yeah. uh, this you know, many generations old uh, vinegar maker in Miyazu, north of Kyoto, make this purple potato vinegar called Benimosu. And I don't think they told me what it was when I first smelled it. And it smells like Beaujolais. It smells like fruity and dark. And it is this color of purple, you know, deep saturated that I, I had never seen before hmm. other than, you know, as a color aid when you're doing, you know, Photoshop. Um it was kind of wild. And then I saw the process where they steam these purple potatoes, you know, converting those starches into sugars and then turning it into a big mash, extending it out with water and in a sense turning it into sweet potato wine before they turn it into. Yeah, right. Sweet I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very popular, um, well, liqueur. Yeah. More than a wine. Yeah. Right? And, and then into vinegar. It's just, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. What, um, what was one, and we're going to talk about, your travels and the, and the different foods um, in a little bit, but through your travels or even just right here at home, what was the most unusual thing you ran across that was made into a vinegar? That was made into a vinegar. Well, I mean, the sweet potato definitely yeah. shocked me a little okay. bit. Yeah. Um, I'd hate to say that sometimes I'm a little boring because I'm also a very analytical and logistical person in that when I started making vinegar, uh, I trialed out a whole bunch of things from wines to beers and that got a little expensive. So I tried to figure out what was the cheapest and most efficient thing to kind of practice with. And it turned in, it, it ended up being honey um, because the amount of honey that I needed to mix into water was somewhere around, you know, one to five to one to but seven. But couldn't you just stop it and we could have mead and we could have a good time drinking mead? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, believe me, I sample the mead every once in a while as well. It's a, it's a, it's a nice, Unlike kombucha, which is actually uh, sacrification and acetification are happening simultaneously, so you don't really yield alcohol in that process, you have to in vinegar. You have Mm. to go through that double fermentation. So if I want a little mead, I just have less vinegar at the end. But uh, I I practiced with honey, and I primarily staked my business model on making honey vinegars. Um, And... I still do. I sell a little here and there. Uh, I do, you know, special projects for chefs and restaurants. But from there, I was looking around to other sugars. Um, glucose of all sugars ended up converting 
most wonderfully out of, you know, better than sucrose. I don't know why it was, but mm. so I started looking at other glucoses. Plus, that was what was allowed by New York State. Um, the protocol for making vinegar. Oh, I didn't yeah. really know they had that. You know, I mean, you did mention it in your yeah. book, but I, you know, I was not. It was an interesting thing, and I don't think there's complete clarity about uh, vinegar production in the states right now. So I kind of got a license to be able to do bought wine, bought beer, and glucose vinegars only. Maybe they just need a little education. Oh, right? I'm trying. <laughs> I am trying. Um, well, you actually you got into the whole thing. A little accidentally, too, didn't you? It was a cute yeah. anecdote, at yeah. least. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the history of vinegar might be accidental. I mean, I, I left an alcohol out, and it turned Well, not any alcohol. It was beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I have a party uh, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Uh, my wife and I make dozens of different kinds of pizzas and invite friends over, and we usually get a keg. Uh, from Six Point Craft Ales, uh, good friends of mine down in Brooklyn. So it was a keg of their Atlantic Amber, which I love. And we drank a good amount of it that year, but there was some left in the keg, and I didn't want it to go to waste. Mm-hmm. And I randomly had this barrel because I thought in my head, I- I'm going to barrel-age a cocktail and this. I get overly ambitious sometimes <laughs> with these food projects, and that kind of sat in the backyard, and this was a perfect opportunity. I'm like, I'm just going to barrel-age some beer, see what happens. And I did that, and I forgot about it. Or I just didn't want to think about it for a while and it kind of wintered over in our backyard. And by spring, I opened that up and it was the most wonderful malt vinegar I've ever tasted. Wow. That's, that's incredible. That's a fun way to yeah. get, you know, to, as your introduction into a, a research project, it was, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it was part introduction, part intentional in that I've been wanting to get back into the food space for a while. Yeah. Having cooked for... Yeah, a, you did. Well, you cooked for, for a while before you yeah. um, did heavy heavy photography yeah and i played around with a couple ideas you know i still do want to open up a restaurant or a bar or a cafe or you know a food line but i'm thinking to myself i don't have the time for that so what's the no la- but i i have an idea for you yeah. which i'll mention at the end of the show Excellent. okay i'm like what's the laziest thing i could do and actually i first thought about doing a miso company uh with all american rices and beans um and i got impatient with that and you ended up making rice wine no. yeah, yeah um so I ended up kind of falling on vinegar because I'm like, oh, this should be easy because, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Vinegar is made? I mean, like, what is there after vinegar? Nothing. Nothing. So it's like yeah. it's, it's a good kind of, uh, you know, bookend. So I'm like, yeah, I'll give this a shot. And it ended up becoming an obsession enough to write a book about. Terrific. Well, we're going to find out about all of those interesting travels that you took to learn about the different vinegars when we come back after a short break. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years and plus. Each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife Charlie started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. 
I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, welcome back. I'm talking with Michael Harlan Turkel, and he has a new book out called Acid Trip travels in the world of vinegar, lest you might think we were talking something <laughs> else, right? Um, you know, I ran across one of those interesting little factoids, and that was that in the 1920s, apple cider vinegar was made and drunk more than any other fruit juice in the U.S. I'm That's thinking, well, was, it just, was it just bad cider, yeah. or <laughs> were they intentionally drinking apple cider vinegar? I don't know. And, and today, there are all these apple cider, organic apple cider companies, uh, vinegar companies, who promote it specifically as a health agent. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in New England alone, fire cider and that, yeah. that style mm-hmm. of tonic. Um, certainly big. But I, I want to clarify... Um, when you are drinking those kind of vinegars, look for live acetobacter, unpasteurized, raw could be on the label. Otherwise, it doesn't do you any No, good, exactly. Right? Yeah, what's that big, there's a big popular brand across the country that I think was one of the first to promote. Uh, Bragg's. Bragg's, that's yeah. it. Yeah, right. I'll tell you about it's Bragg's another okay. time. Well, but there is an amazing orchard in Sonoma that used to be one of the original uh, suppliers of apples for them called um, Nana Mays. They still make a raw, unpasteurized apple cider vinegar, which is right, really gosh. delicious. Yeah. Well, okay, so you decided to take a travel as much as your you know budget would allow, right, to as many places as you could um, to learn about their vinegars. Um what was the first place you went? Uh, to France, to France, okay. Orléans. Uh, yeah, and there's a, then so they have a major uh, like mass production method that became sort of the the um, the method for making vinegar. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it mass production. Uh, there well, were there was a mass of people making it at a okay. time, <laughs> uh, but the amount that they can make. Uh, so the Orléans style or method happens in Orléans, France, or happened in Orléans, France, a city that had hundreds of Orléans-style vinegar makers, now only has one left. Uh, Martin Pouré, who's a sixth-generation um, maker of said vinegar in the same location, like grew up down the street, his family like lives next door to the vinegar factory, 
which you can smell blocks away. <laughs> yeah, but it's on the Loire River, and uh, a lot of wine or you know just must grape juice that mm-hmm. was coming from the Loire to be sent up to Paris pre-industrialization. Uh, a certain amount of it would spoil. And rather than sending up to Paris because they get taxed by each bottle or by amount of, you know, weight that was being shipped, uh, they just drop off that sour wine on the shores. So that city became kind of a hotbed for vinegar making because they had the, I mean, free materials. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay. So that wasn't really a method. No. <laughs> yeah, it was... It was a, they call it the Orléans method. Yeah, I, I exactly. Don't know, I well, the method itself is putting it in barrels. In barrels. Um, at a certain percentage and filling it up at a certain percentage more. Uh, you, you kind of inoculate it. Uh, you have wine in a barrel and you inoculate it with vinegar that had already been made to you know, kind of hasten the process. But it's so non-interventionist and so not scientific. They don't have an oneologist. They just have a, a method that they've been using and is tried and true for six generations. Hey, if it tastes good and it works. It tastes delicious. Know. Yeah. Um, so what they they have gotten into the, um, I want to say, elite vinegar uh, business as well in France. What 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 are they producing? They're producing some, some unusual uh, vinegars. Too, are they not? Oh yeah, it depends on what region you're in. In Normandy, which has a great you know cider culture, uh, some really amazing cider cider vinegars. There's a producer named Cyril Zangs who is pretty exemplary um, as both a cider maker and cider vinegar maker. Uh, then you know you travel to other places, and it's just a matter of what kind of regional produce they have. Um, there is an amazing uh, nut oil maker in Beaujeu hmm. called a Huillerie Beaujolais. And even though they don't make their vinegar in France, uh, it's sent to Germany, I think, made by a company called Von Voss. Um, a lot of the produce uh, and methodology uh, comes from Huillerie Beaujolais. And their, their citron vinegar is one of the best I've ever had. Mm. That, that just sounds good to me. I think of using vinegar as a, a taste agent is is always to me brightening food oh yeah it's, it's a brightener you know and you know reach for the whether you reach for a lemon or you reach for you know the vinegar and hopefully you'll reach for a good vinegar yes yeah, it <laughs> has a wonderful effect okay so did, then you moved on to italy maybe oh yes okay absolutely i think we would be um uh, uh it would it would not be good if we did not talk about balsamic vinegar. Even yeah. though there's a lot, lo- we don't have to talk all about it. But the goods and the bads. Yeah, there there are books written about specifically balsamic vinegar. But first, let's have a nice story about balsamic vinegar. <laughs> I mean, they're they're all nice stories in the book. Um, you know, bals- historic story. Yeah. yeah, something of you know, they, there was there was some history to it, and it's. Not necessarily confirmed history. Folklore. Okay. Yeah. So I tried to write in the book as much, not as hearsay or speculative, but in a way that um, I'm sure I'm going to get Modenese and people from Reggio Emilia (laughs) calling me up and saying, well, that's not true because my father's father's father told me this. But um, it it was made as, again, like this healing and restorative thing for for royals there, Um, you know, and, and through trade. It started extending itself outside of that city. But truthfully, balsamic was never supposed to be on supermarket shelves. It was something, it was made by a mother for a daughter and given as a dowry. It was a matriarchal thing. And these acetayas, uh, where they made the vinegar, it was literally just 
underneath one's roof. So in the attic, there would be a series of batteria or, you know, descending sized barrels of different wood that you'd rack this cooked down grape juice from one to but the other. But they did. They But they reduced it before they started yeah, to age and, it. Yeah. You know, that's what's fascinating. Balsamic's kind of an outlier when, it, when you talk about vinegar as a whole, yet it's probably the most well-known because it's the only one that I know that you're not using fresh product. Yeah, I would even refer to it more as a um, as a condiment or almost a syrup or like a saba. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. it's... it's yeah. To call it a vinegar is almost a misnomer. Yeah, but. I call it. Um, I call balsamic a method. You okay. know, more so than Orleone too. Like it, it's a method of um, you know concentrating the sugars before you ferment them. Yeah, and it's and it's really not a true balsamic unless it's been sitting in those barrels for at least what twenty five years. Or uh, so? Twelve years. Twelve years. For, okay. Yeah, DOP traditionale. Yeah. But even more than that. You can't just leave something in a barrel for 12 years and call it, you know, balsamic. Uh, it has it's scrupulous. Uh, the consortiums have to taste and rate it. And, you know, even once it's called a traditionale, there are rankings of those traditionale, too. Yeah. So you can get, you know, a, a Aragosta or Red Label or Gold or Silver. So um, they're, they're, it's like the Templars of vinegar. In, in and the, if you've ever been fortunate enough to go and watch any of the testers from the from the consortiums, yeah. be it ham or cheese, or, or they take their jobs very seriously. I don't think I was even allowed to see them taste. Oh. I saw all the tools. Um, there's a great museum in Spielberto, the Balsamic Museum, and you can see all about the history of uh, Balsamico. Um, and you see the room where they all sit around. It's this, you know, old wooden table with these very ornate wooden chairs, maybe about 12 seats in total. Uh, and they wear, you know, those, those little wine cups that sommeliers wear. Mm-hmm. They have those for vinegar as well. So so where did the term balsamic come from? Uh, balm. You know, it, Just meaning a bomb. A yeah, bomb. that it was healing or restorative. Um, and that that's kind of one of those things that as much as I dug into history and there are amazing uh, professors in Italy that have studied balsamic, that's still not 100% known it had been written in you know poems and scriptures and but there's so much interpretation left uh to what bomb was or what the original iteration of balsamic was too um that i think that's still up for debate well and you think about the process now that it's as you say concentrated sugar and then it has to age in these barrels and be watched very carefully for you know 12 years or more i mean it's like a fine wine oh absolutely they can't really produce all that much. And we were talking before the show. I said, I still have half a I, I parse it out by the mini teaspoon, mm-hmm. espresso spoon, um, half a bottle. And the bottle is only as big as my fist, you know, of, of yeah. some of the extra vecchio. And I figure, I'm looking down the line. Half a <laughs> bottle is probably still over $100. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, you Very get, expensive stuff. Yeah. Those bottles are regulated. It's only 100 milliliters. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we could probably do a price breakdown of what every milliliter costs because those range anywhere from 150 bucks to 300 plus okay. dollars. And that's the extra vecchio, the extra old. And yeah, you can get the, the 12-year-old the in a plus. little bit larger yes. bit of a bottle. Yeah. And that's, but that's very good, too. And that's good for different purposes. Yeah. Talk about the stuff that's on the supermarket shelves. Oh, God. Um, caramel coloring, fortified with extra sugars. It's made to look like balsamic. It's texture modified 
to feel like balsamic, but in no way is it balsamic yeah. to me. And sometimes, and it's thin, but it's thin. Yeah. That's your first clue. It's thin like, you know, a regular vinegar. It makes... At, it can make a not bad salad dressing. I no, mean, not to, not yeah. to totally disparage all the the balsamics out there. Mix enough mustard, some yeah. Other, you know, some I, other umami, umami you know, flavors. I in actually, there, there are a couple of recipes which blend the two ideas: IGP, which is the industrial production vinegar, mm-hmm. uh, balsamic vinegar, and DOP, which is the traditionale. Um, Massimo Bottura, who who many people may know as the man of Modena, you know, very Master chef, yeah, yes. very well known <laughs> chef. Uh, I mean, he's Modenese. He's grown up with vinegar. He, he gave me great stories about how each Christmas uh, a family member would give him or his siblings a bottle of vinegar. And the first thing he would do was go outside and pour it on the snow and eat it kind of like a like snow cone. Like ice cream. Yeah. Ice cream yeah. Cone, yeah. So uh, that's wow. probably a pretty expensive <laughs> snow cone. Right. But, you know, he actually makes um, vinegar. Uh, so he has his IGP production and then DOP. But you have to know what to use each one for. So I actually made a recipe um, inspired by uh, a staff meal or a family meal that he has of balsamic uh, cooked onions and mm. a whole bunch of Parmesan and a frittata. So you cook the onions with the you I, know, IGP stuff. I did read that recipe yeah. from front to back, yeah. yes. <laughs> you, you know, glaze these it. onions and it's, it's really, really tasty and tons of Parmesan and this frittata and, you know, inverted out onto the plate. But the last thing you do is... Pour as much DOP on top as you can as afford. You, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, not everybody can run out and buy an yeah. expensive bottle of balsamic vinegar. So, so the imitation brands. I mean, are, are not imitation brands. They, they are what they call balsamic. You get an idea, but if you ever f- taste the real stuff and the aged stuff, I mean, all you need is this tiny teaspoon and drizzle it on a peach or on oh, some yeah. raspberries or oh, the, I think uh, the the best, strawberries from the woods. Yeah, the little the teeny ones. The best bite I had was in Reggio Emilia. So there are two towns that can actually make traditionale, Modena and Reggio Emilia. Mm-hmm. And in Reggio, I was out to dinner with a wonderful balsamic maker, um, Andrea from San Giacomo. And the last line item for dessert was uh, as much Parmesan as you want. And they literally bring this giant chunk of Parmesan and you can hack away at it and a spoonful of vinegar. And it's just a little ceramic spoon with a little DOP poured in it. And that was dessert. That was the end of the night. And it was kind of the digestif and that resonates like that's that's stuck with me. Yeah, yeah, that is good. And it's and it is you see that a lot. And, you know, in some of the finer restaurants. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to another country. That found you found some interesting vinegar well. <laughs> made from something. Well, Japan. You spent a lot of time in Japan. Yeah, learning. that was interesting. But okay. Before Japan, I stopped in Austria, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. The reason I went there is because that you know cap full of vinegar I had you know from Barbara Lynch right. was by this man named Gegenbauer, Erwin Gegenbauer, and he's he's located in Vienna. So I think the majority of this project is due to him. Uh, I knew I wanted to meet him and figure out why, you know, the smallest sip of vinegar kind of changed my life. Your curiosity yeah, was piqued by it this man. <laughs> took 15 years to go and meet him, um, whether or not it was the courage to do so or just I wanted to have a good enough understanding that I could have the right kind of conversation. Um, so I, I was definitely intimidated to go there and meet him, but he was so gracious and opened his home to me and, you know, spent a day and a half taking me around Vienna and tasting through his vinegars. 
but he is quite possibly, and not to disregard other people in this book, the best vinegar maker in the world. All right, now what what distinguishes his vinegar from others? And you had already by this time tasted so many fine vinegars um, from the very thick, sweet, syrupy balsamic to uh, you know to other he other flavors. What what is what? What sets his apart? Well, the breadth of what he can do. I mean, he makes hundreds of different styles of vinegar, flavors of vinegar, from vegetables to fruits to, you know, Trockenberry and Auslesa wines. But it's the purity of ingredient. If he's making a cucumber vinegar, it's just cucumber. If he's making, you know, a tomato vinegar, it's just tomato. So you really get the essence of that fruit through the final product? I wish there was a word bigger than essence, because I can't even tell you about the kind of I don't know. It just it just so is what it is. Hmm. It's it's all encompassing. They're they're really some of the most beautiful examples of vinegar I've ever tasted. We've got to get a linguist in here and we have to create a new word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's obvious it's I yeah, I'm still at a loss of words to to explain to people what those vinegars not just taste like but do to you as a person. And he so how he so he must produce a vast amount of different vinegars. Not in quantity necessarily, just oh, in, yeah. in flavors. Um, go to his website because there's also an amazing video. Uh, it's buy kind the book. Of, but first yeah, first yeah. you have to buy the book. Oh, yeah. Right? And but then I, you can go to his he website. He has this video, I think it's like German dotist video about vinegar, and it's of all these kind of scantily clad women running around the forest throwing mother, that cellulose that forms at the yeah. top, um, at each other. It's wild. Um, it, that's worth a watch alone. But go to his product list and... Uh, seriously, there are hundreds of different flavors of vinegar, uh, saffron vinegar, red pepper vinegar. I mean, I can go on and on. Anything underneath the sun, I think this man has made into vinegar. Wow, that's that's wonderful. Uh, talk about mothers. You just you mentioned that briefly, the, the nymphs running around throwing, yeah. <laughs> throwing mothers at each other. Yeah. Uh, talk, me, people, you know, we hear a lot of banter about mothers, and they see it in their bottles, they think. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, a mother that does float to the top of a barrel of vinegar what what is a mother um so mothers are bullshit (laughs) they're not bullshit they're just there's such a preconception as to needing one to make a vinegar Uh. and they are this you know they are a scoby this symbiotic collection of bacteria and yeast um but what it is is cellulose and i think of it kind of from my cooking days as when you make a stock and you want to clarify it, you make a raft of a lean protein, right. be it you know eggs or a piece of pork, and things attached to that raft. And then you can pull that out and you have a clear substrate. Um, a mother is similar in the sense that it is a raft. It is a place for activity to happen, um, you know, and it helps foster along that fermentation of alcohol into acetic acid. But they can be troubling. Too much mother can suffocate you know, a liquid. And when you see a mother that's submerged, that is not a live mother because it is something that thrives on oxygen to, to live. And I don't know anything that needs oxygen to live that, that is, you know, underwater. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a great indicator that activity is happening. Uh, when that forms it, it, it's there. Someone told me yesterday, uh, this is a great term, um, that is kind of a helicopter mother because it's there to protect, uh, but it can be overly protective too. So when people pass along mothers saying, use my mother to start this vinegar, it's a great story, but it's not necessary. 
Uh, it can hyper accelerate a process that doesn't need to be. And you can lose aroma and nuances by kind of like forcing it to go in a direction where it can happen naturally. And mm. I think using indigenous yeasts or, you know, using the world around you to, to genuinely affect your fermentation makes for a better product and a, a kind of more personal you know, flavor profile. There, there is, without a doubt, a lot to learn about <laughs> yeah, a making bit. vinegar, and we just can't do it in a, in a quick time. So I want to, I just want you to click off the other places that you visited, and without, we can't, we don't have time yeah. to talk about the wines, because I have something I want to mention at the end. Well, you mentioned Japan, and yep. that was wild, because I went there expecting one thing, and I found the other. I thought I was going to find all these shokunin, these artisans, these craftspeople, making the most gorgeous examples of vinegar you know for generations upon generations and it was harder to find than i thought Mm. because vinegar in today's contemporary you know japanese cuisine is not as overt as you'd think it's a backbone flavor it's foundational uh it's part of balance but pre-industrialization there uh so we know sushi today as fresh fish uh pre-edome or tokyo Bay sushi uh a lot of it was Pickled. Pickled. Both the fish and the rice use primarily vinegar to preserve them. Uh, Soy sauce didn't even end up on sushi tables until, you know, like the mid to late 1800s. So vinegar was that primary ingredient and that flavor was something people, I don't know if they craved, but understood. And now today, the the palate of uh, contemporary Japanese cuisine, and I know that's this is a very big, broad, and umbrella statement, is much, much sweeter than it's ever been. There are a few examples of sauces that are acidic, like nanbansu, or anything that ends in su or zu is usually uh, got a decent amount of vinegar in it. Oh, interesting. Good to know. Uh, and any place else that of note that you... Well, all through North have... America. But there are places that I wish I had traveled to that I didn't. And I think the biggest one is the Philippines. Oh, next book. Yeah, the yeah. acid trip too. Yeah, well, I mean, and you know, they obviously influence the cuisines of those of those countries yeah. so much. So, and that's why I wanted to get to a, a last mention yeah. if we have time. The the book there throughout the book, and then especially towards the end of the book, it's just in each region, you have wonderful recipes, and I think that's the most. Um, interesting thing for people to to carry away. They they can look okay. Hear all about these great vinegars and people doing fermentation, but what to do with it? How can you use it? And you have some very interesting recipes in the book. What one? What's one of your favorites? Oh the, man, that's like picking a favorite child. Uh-huh. Um, Aside from uh, Massimo Bottaro's yeah, uh, yeah. balsamic frittata. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the simple things, actually. Um, there's North and South Carolina barbecue sauces. One's, yeah. you know... V- if you don't have like, acid, you don't have yeah, barbecue sauce. Yeah, one's, you know, very vinegar and chili-based. The other one is more mustardy. Um, and then in that mustard realm, Dijon beef jerky is my favorite. Mm. Vinegar is so good at breaking down uh, proteins. Uh, so tough cuts of beef can benefit from a little vinegar bath, and especially flavored with uh, Dijon mustard is is just that gives I, it I, that depth. We need, we well, need that. I love jerky, but I love jerky more when it has acidity. It kind of mm. you know you have it and you salivate and it's so salty, but try it with uh, this Dijon uh, vinegar bath, and that is kind of outstanding. Then after the adobo from the Philippines, mm. chicken adobo, you know is it's chickens braised in that liquid and then pan fried to finish for texture and this was something that you know even uh, portuguese missionaries traveled around the world having 
this style of soak for protein so they wouldn't spoil. And it was also really savory and delicious. Hmm. What? There, there are so many. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's interesting because we've come, well, you've gone around the world and we've come, but we've come uh, all around. And even in a short period of history, vinegar went from being very rare and very expensive or very valuable to being a poor man's drink. Yeah. Right. And now here we are elevating it once again to this, you know, to this wonderful product that it sh- I'm sure that you believe it should be. Yeah. And I have I have a cur- another you said you wanted to go back and cook and open a- I think you should open a vinegar shop. You know, we've got shops devoted just to salt. Yeah. <laughs> we need a shop devoted just to vinegar. Well, I don't know if my wife would let me do that. She <laughs> she being a wine writer and she yeah. wants to open up a wine bar. Uh, it was fascinating to be in Italy. We could have the before and after yeah. store. <laughs> well, and it can't be too close because when we were in Piedmont, all these Barolo makers, a couple of them secretly make vinegar, were telling us that it's illegal to have uh, acetaya within X amount of feet of, of you know uh, winery because they're worried about the cross-contamination oh, of things. Interesting. Um, Even the word acetaya is interesting because in the Roman uh, in Roman recipes, the acetae were the were salads. Yeah, absolutely. Anything made with vinegar. Yeah, yeah. And that's aceto, aceto, aceto in in Italian today. Yeah. Interesting acid trip, Michael Harlan Turkel. What uh, what a fun study, and and what a wonderful book and a wonderful product that you have have given us. Thank you. Acid trip travels in the world of vinegar. Thanks so much for joining me. And you can hear Michael Weekly on the food scene here at Heritage Radio Network. And thank you for tuning in to A Taste of the Past. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.